and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million goblets, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. It's so nice to see so many of you. <laughs> it's nice to see you. Asha and Dana, I haven't seen you in a while. So today I want to talk about suffering. And I want to talk about meta practice and compassion practice. And I'm mostly going to be referring to a book by Norman Fisher called Training and Compassion Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. And we have studied some of this in the past, um, mostly through Pema's, Pema Chodron's book. And I think you're all familiar with Pema. If you're not, let me know and we can send you a link or, or something. But the reason that I want to talk about this is we've had several challenging years in a row. I think this year for me has been particularly challenging because there is a lot of change. And one of the first thing I discovered when reading this material again, and I also listened to a couple of brief talks by Pema on YouTube is that part of the punch of suffering for me is my resistance to things changing. And Steve did a whole lecture about change last weekend, so I thought this would follow pretty well with that. And so I picked up this book again a couple of months ago, and I I was kind of wondering why a Zen priest would talk about a Tibetan teaching. <laughs> he talks about that at the very beginning of his book. And what he says is, there's a couple of reasons. One, he's a very ecumenical Zen teacher, and he talks about his Jewish heritage, and he also has written a book about the Psalms. and the interfaith interreligious dialogue he feels is important and i do too coming from a very strict catholic background where that was the right way and the only way i like that we're able to comment and include other teachings when we when we talk zen and uh, but he also said and i hadn't really realized this or thought about it very much is that Although we are a Mahayana tradition and compassion is the foundation of that, in Zen there's not a lot of specific instruction about that. So what Norman says is that most Zen literature and lore appears to be rough, theoretical, in an anti-theoretical way, and austere if often humorous, since Zen is so fixated on cutting through complications and focusing on a few simple, profound points, it assumes 
rather than encourages compassion and has very little to say about it. Now, I'm sure there's many people who could argue that with me, and I'm not a Zen scholar, <laughs> but I just thought that was interesting because a lot of times I know I've caught myself, um, and I'll say a little bit about this in a minute. The, the Lojong teachings are, if you're not familiar, a, uh, a practice that involves working with short phrases or slogans, and they're they're a way of generating bodhicitta, which is the heart and mind of enlightened compassion. In Norman's book, he goes through these and organizes them. There, there are 59 slogans and they're organized into seven points. His recommendation is that you choose something and you work with that. So something that resonates. And so what I did is I went and as I was reading through, I found something and a couple of months ago, I started with begin at the beginning and end at the end. And so his suggestion for that practice was to, when you wake up in the morning, say to yourself, today I wanna to dedicate myself to being generous, open-hearted and kind for the benefit of all beings. And then at the end of the day, you go through sort of lightly think about your day and recite may everything that I have done today with whatever level of skill or good intention be dedicated to benefiting others. So where the suffering comes in for me is I got up this morning and because I've been doing this, I repeated very softly to myself today, I want to dedicate myself to being generous, open-hearted and kind for the benefit of all beings. And pretty much immediately this morning, I failed at that <laughs> right away. We have a lot going on in the house right now. We're watching a neighbor's dog. Our little dog is nervous and barking. I have a very ill sister-in-law, yada, yada, yada. There, there's a million things. And so I was impatient and angry and upset this morning about a couple of things. And I thought, oh my, how am I ever gonna lecture this morning? How am I going to compose myself? And so what I want to say about that is that I'm here. And in the midst of that, and I think because of, and maybe it's not that causal, but because my intention has been to pay attention in the midst of being upset and too loud in my complaints, <laughs> I saw myself. I had some spaciousness and awareness about that. And that dictated the rest of my behavior beyond that, both to those around me and to myself, which I really want to say is so critical 
So what Pema does in some of her teaching is to talk about, she really analyzes suffering. And I do a meta practice every day, I have for years now. And it's a wonderful practice. It's a way of me um, extending compassion or love towards others and myself in in a daily way. I remember myself, I remember my family members who've died, I remember people who are sick, I pray for the world, <laughs> the whole thing. And it's a wonderful grounding, stabilizing practice for me. And what Pema says though, is that when you really get into compassion practice, it ups the ante because of the kinds of suffering that we experience. And so I'm gonna go through and talk about these three kinds of suffering, categories of suffering. And I'm not exactly sure where in the teachings this delineation exists, but I'm sure I could find it if you wanted me to. So the first kind of suffering is the suffering of suffering. And this is the kind of suffering that I think we all think about when that word comes up, suffering. If you see an animal that's hit on the side of the road and isn't dead yet and is struggling, when you see anything that's neglected, the homelessness in the world, in all of our communities, you think of being too hungry or too thirsty, the horrible violence that's going on all over the world and in our country, and then the many varied kinds of oppression that we are all aware of in our own communities and, and globally now, because we have a 24-hour feed of everything, mostly negative, that's happening in the world. So this is a kind of suffering that we all experience just being alive and getting out of bed every day. So there's that. But what she says is that's sort of like the top level. Then the second kind of suffering is a suffering in impermanence. So it's that kind of suffering, which is also part of what it means to be a human being on the planet is nothing stays the same. Things change. And we want some things to remain the same. I don't want my temple to ever go away or my teacher to leave or move on. I don't want my comfortable life to be interrupted by someone's violence or intrusion into my, my peaceful place. We prefer pleasure to pain and that's human and normal. However, our lives don't just consist of pleasure all the time. And if we don't allow um, if we don't allow this experience or try to deny this sort of underlying anxiety of things always changing, then we 
we miss a whole part of our human experience and miss the opportunity to be compassionate towards ourselves when we're in the midst of that kind of uh, feeling of groundlessness that we can experience as we walk through our days. So there is pleasure. I mean, there's hummingbirds at my feeders. The garden is gorgeous with hydrangeas and poppies, and but then it shifts and the deer come and chomp off the heads of the flowers or the, <laughs> then the wolf comes and kills the deer and uh, on and on. So it was funny in this little talk that Pema gave, she said that she was trying to explain this to her daughter when she was a teenager. And her daughter said to her, well, you know, if there was no pleasure, this whole thing would be a whole lot easier <laughs> because it's that that we're always clinging on to, the pleasurable part of our experience. So her suggestion is that when those things change, and I'm trying to remember how she characterized this. I think she said, Oh, here we go. It's under the third point. So there is the first, the suffering of suffering, the suffering and impermanence, and then there is all pervasive suffering. And this is a lot what I was just talking about, wanting ourselves to be stable, wanting security, predictability, something we can hold on to. And we are shifting and changing all the time. We experience that as a hum of anxiety in the background. And this is one of those paradoxical things, paradoxical, is that a word? Uh, paradoxical things for me, because when I read that, I felt such a relief. Oh, it's just not me as this underlying hum of anxiety, it's sort of a condition of being alive. And I've been trying to make it go away all of these years sitting on my cushion, <laughs> thinking that if I just sat enough and it, it was a little light bulb moment, I wouldn't say it was a profound big moment, but I thought, well, this is where we need to take a kindly, friendly interest, especially where we need to take a kindly, friendly interest. So this morning when I was losing it a little bit, instead of trying to think of a way to justify my behavior, which is also a place that I go, well, they did this, and if this didn't happen, and if this dog wasn't here, and if Sonny was watching for this, and if blah, 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 then I wouldn't be so upset, that kind of thing. I either justify it, I try to distract myself from it, uh, but if I can just even get a second, and I got it this morning, of spaciousness, of just paying attention 
And it's not even a really conscious, deliberate kind of thought. It's just instead of taking out the big stick, you take note with a kind heart. And I think Mary said to me once to sort of pat myself on the shoulder and say, there, there, <laughs> there, there. And if I can do that mentally, something shifts and I don't have to call Mary and say, I'm too upset, I can't lecture this morning, I'm very sorry, you'll have to find somebody else to do it, <laughs> which was a thought that crossed my mind. So anyway, here I am. So my point in all this is we need to be friendly to ourselves and merciful to others. There was um, a favorite AA speaker of mine who used to do a lot of talks in, at conferences and stuff. And he said, when we were young, we would, we would demand justice, justice. And he says, as we get older, we say, mercy, mercy. <laughs> so um, to notice this in ourselves and to be able to hold ourselves with that kind of kindness, my thinking is that that's what gives me the opportunity and the ability then when someone is in my face or acting in a way that is hurtful to me that I can generate some bodhicitta, some open-heartedness, some ability to be merciful with them and kind to myself. So I think that's a pretty good mantra be friendly to oneself and merciful to others. So I think that that's all that I have to say about compassion and suffering this morning. Does anybody have any questions or comments or anything to add? Asha? Thank you, Kate. Do you have Norman's book there? Could you, if so, can you hold it up? I do not have Norman's book here because I have it on my electronically. I can send a link to the book in the name of the book to the list or, or just to you individually, if you'd like. Thank you so much. We may have it in the library. I can't remember. I think I know I've seen it. That first part that you were talking about, the beginning and the end, you know, start at the beginning and end at the end. But is that kind of tricky because there's not really a beginning and not really an end, so just do it all the time or, or what? I think do it all the time. I think the point, those kind of things for me are just useful because I'm a human being and I live on a 24-hour day and there is a beginning to my day and an end to my day and 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 so it helps me to have some kind of structure to it and it gives me a place to start and, and a way to close 
my practice during the course of the day. And the benefit of practice for me, the benefit of the discipline of any of these things that we do is that the more I do it, the more I'm able to be present to it during the course of my day or all of the time, like you said, when I'm walking down the street and see a homeless person, when I'm at the grocery store and somebody cuts the line, when any number of things. Does, does that help? Yes, thank you. Hi Kate, thank you. Your comments about pleasure and pain made me think of the greatest college basketball player of all time, John Wooden. He was a bit of a philosopher too. And he used to say, for every mountain, there's a valley. And um, I think he meant, without a mountain, there'd be no valley and vice versa. And you think pleasure and pain have a relationship like that? If we only had pleasure, it wouldn't be pleasure. What do you think the relationship is between the two? The first thing that comes to mind is that if I have an ice cream tonight and I have a little bit of ice cream and it's really delicious ice cream and I savor it, it's wonderful and it's pleasurable. And and I don't want that pleasure to end. And it does. Now, and that's not painful the first time. Now, if I ate ice cream in the morning, and then for my snack, and then for lunch, and then for dinner, and then later on, it wouldn't be pleasurable. I'd be sick of ice cream by that time. So, too much of a good thing? I'm not sure. I know they both are there. And sometimes when, and that, that's a pretty simple example too. That's, that's about um, physical pleasure. You know, when you talk about the pain of impermanence, that's, that's a trickier, that's a trickier business to me. Cause I'm not sure where the pleasure part of that is, um, how that would relate, relate to pressure. So that, that's something I will think about that, but I, I don't have an answer. I'm bowing. <laughs> Steve? Kate, I was probably going to ask about pleasure and pain too, but I'm not going to now. I, I think I just, okay, I'm going to say something. I think I disagree with Pima's daughter that um, it would be harder without pleasure. I think pleasure makes it a little bit easier. But uh, anyway, that's not why I was, that's not why I put my hand in the show. Um, I wanted to ask you, how is your experience of effort in compassion versus letting compassion arise? I've noticed my own sort of journey with that, and I'm wondering what your journey is like. My effort with compassion and letting it arise? And to be a little bit more specific, 
I think of the analogy that's usually used between teacher and student, that the student is trying to wake up and the teacher is trying to help them. And there's a is the um, little chick in the egg uh, picking at the outside. The teacher is like the hen picking on, I mean, the student is picking, pecking on the inside and the teacher is pecking on the outside. Uh -huh. So I felt like my journey with compassion has been somewhat like that, that um, part of it is my own effort and part of it is, doesn't seem to come from within and, and it's the influence of many people and, 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 uh, and it's just the influence of Zazen, I think, I assume. Do you have, how do you feel about that? Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I often, when I'm practicing anything, have to act as if for a while. <laughs> I, I may not feel compassionate. I may not feel kind. I might not feel, but I can act as if without being phony. I, I, I think that it, it, it's not disingenuous. Um, to restrain myself from saying unkind things when I really, really want to. But there is a difference between that and something that um, arises of its own accord. And that's one of those mysterious things for me. I, in practice, I, I can't will something to happen, just like I can't I'm not able to will myself to feel friendly towards um, many of our current politicians. <laughs> I can't will myself to feel um, compassionate towards uh, someone who's hurting an animal or something like that. I think what Pema's really getting at when she's talking about this kind of suffering is the the value of turning away from that experience in yourself allows you to be more open-hearted when you see that in others and to not turn away from that either. Now, it doesn't mean you have to accept it or that you have to, uh, I mean, you can take constructive action uh, when you see harm being done or when I see harm being done. Yeah, I think that's all I have to say. Is, did that answer your question? Yes. Liam. I really like your talk. I was thinking about some of these things. Uh... In particular, how um, like Zen really emphasizes the wisdom side more than the compassion side. The compassion side is not ignored, but I feel like wisdom is what's really emphasized, which has a connection. I've noticed uh, kind of years of cultivating noticing and noticing my habit patterns and my tendencies that um, increasingly. And then you mentioned spaciousness, which kind of clicked in with this for me when you said that. There's a habitual pattern that might 
I might say something or in a particular tone. And but more recently, I know there's kind of a little space and it gives me a chance to notice that. And then I, I don't do that or it changes something. And it doesn't feel at all phony. It feels like, you know, I don't have to let this habit pattern keep controlling me. I can notice it and be freer of it. And it's, um, it's very nice, really. I've just started working with Pema's little book of Lo Jong's. She has a little different approach where uh, she says to just open a different one each morning. Mm. I really love those. And, uh, thank you for your talk. Thank you. Mary? Liam reminded me of something that I noticed when you were speaking that really illustrated what you said and what he said, too. You said about this morning when you were, I'll say irritated, whatever. And, uh, and there was a moment when you, you noticed, you noticed what was going on with you. And then I think you said there was a moment of spaciousness and you realized you, know, you didn't have to keep on down that road. And I think that is, uh, and Liam said something similar, and, and it, it is a fruit of practice, absolutely is a fruit of practice. But, if, but just looking at your face as you said that, you know, it was an aha moment. And it was a fruit of practice, and uh, sometimes you should say, good work, kiddo. <laughs> uh, and, and take a moment to enjoy it, because it is, it is a moment of liberation. I just wanted to underline it, and, and also, it was, it was wonderful to see your face when you thought of it. And when you remembered it, and, and oh, right, I don't have, I don't have to do that. Okay. And maybe that's where wisdom happens. <laughs> I don't know. They, they seem related to me. Wisdom, compassion, suffering. I, I, I think in order to study them, we need to separate them out and, and do it the way we do it. But there's something about wisdom, though, that for me seems, it, well, all of it, it needs to be cultivated and it takes time, which is another um, challenging thing for an impatient person is that things take time. <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight. It takes years. I'm I'm recent. I'm currently doing a drawing seminar with an old mentor and teacher of mine, and and people want to be able to draw fast. Like they want to be able to do a good drawing in a week. And there are people on the internet will say who will tell you we can teach you how to draw in seven days, or you can learn to play a sonata. <laughs> in two weeks. Well, it isn't so. <laughs> and I've been drawing for a long time, and it's rigorous, and it's wonderful. But uh, it's another one of those things that, um, I mean, there are, like everything, even Zen practice, some people sit down on the cushion, and they're like there right away. Wasn't true for me, <laughs> in, in a way. 
and we need to be um, kind and patient with ourselves and merciful with others like Pema said. I, I really like that line. I'm going to sort of remember that. Kind to myself, merciful to others. That's a nice little mantra to carry around. Chris? Yes, thank you. Um, does uh, Norman Fisher offer any explanation as to why? Because I think I agree with his assessment about Zen emphasizing um, sitting practice and wisdom and koans and things like that. The American kind of version that's been passed along here. Does he offer any, is it a historical context that teachers from Japan came from a sort of particular social and political history that, that this version of Buddhism has been, this version of Zen has been passed down as opposed to you know, like the example of maybe some teachers from the Tibetan tradition who always lead with compassion, emphasize compassion. What is the, the explanation for that in the book, or if anyone here has any thoughts on that? In this particular book, at the beginning, he gave a, a brief introduction and didn't get into long detail about the, the different schools like that and how they did that and I really don't know myself I haven't read enough of both sides of that whole history I'm, I'm not at all a scholar so all I have to go on is Norman's Mary do you have a reference for that or do you an answer <laughs> I have thoughts about it I'm no scholar either but I think there are lots of reasons and it's interconnected. I mean, our, our school of Soto Zen comes through Japanese practice more than anything. And in Japan, when it started, you know, it was a, a religion or a practice of the elites, and it was kind of a, a, a Dogen, the Japanese founder of our school, came from a, a warrior caste group. And they were also in the ruling classes. So that may have something to do with it, a sort of a militaristic way. And the, uh, we also know that the, the monasteries, the, the regulations were partly because they were training adolescent boys, so they wanted them to be tired. And I really, uh, they're not, that's, to me, they're not separate wisdom and compassion. I mean, the, as we let go of attachments, which is one way of thinking of wisdom, we see connection and compassion grows from that. You know, we say, you know, you wouldn't hit your, your thumb, you would not purposely hit your own thumb with a hammer. And so you wouldn't purposely, if you understand connection with everybody, everything, you wouldn't purposely hurt it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, that if you follow the, if you sit still, pay attention, and see attachment and let go of attachment, uh, and see connection, that uh, compassion does grow out of that. I see my own fear of the MAGA movement, however you want to phrase that these days. And I can feel 
some empathy for the fear that motivates those people doesn't mean I think it's okay. You know, if you're afraid that um, people of color are going to be dominant or that you are you're afraid that you're going to lose your white privilege um, and not whatever, but that I'm afraid I'm going to lose my democracy. And the fear, I don't, there's, there's parallels in the fear. It's not the same fear exactly. Maybe it is, you know, I, I'm afraid that I'm about to lose what I cherish. And I think they're afraid they're going to lose what they cherish. And uh, I can find some empathy in that. And, and in sitting still with my own uh, suffering. And that's, I guess, a combination of, of uh, wisdom and compassion. I mean, I have to take a kindly, friendly interest in my suffering and be kind, as you say, or merciful. You could say, just be merciful to all beings. Don't forget this one here. But uh, they, there is, there is a, there is a quite a connection between the two, and. We need to, I think, that um, we need to, it's, it's useful to talk about it more. And that's uh, why there's a, a, on a, in the library where I see people for private interviews, a, there's a sign on the altar that I have had. I, I had, and then I took it off years ago because I stopped seeing it, and then it came up again a couple of years ago. I think it says, take a kindly, friendly interest. And that there is more than, you know, we, we forget how much there is because it often sort of flies under the radar. But I think Dogen was, was uh, compassionate and he talks in the Tenso, the instructions of the Tenso about having a grand parental mind. And he talks in the four methods of guidance of the Bodhisattva. The first one is generosity and the second one is kind speech. And the third one is sympathetic joy, and then equanimity. So it wouldn't hurt to talk. It, it's it's good to talk about it more. We don't we don't talk about uh, love very much either. It's it's important to remember. Not the, the agape kind of generous love, selfless love. So it's a valid point, and, and a lot of people nowadays, Zen teachers, are addressing that more. I gave a lecture about love, I don't know, it's been a while now, but um, because part of me thinks, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> and it's just so sappy, and it's like a Hallmark card or something like that, you know, uh, or it's I, somebody at a conference. When I was at, uh, she was talking to me and uh, Joseph Goldstein, I guess, and she, she was, I think she knew him. Anyway, she was just saying, she was saying, compassion, compassion is the answer, compassion is it. And uh, I, 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 I told a story that I like, uh, right, I didn't, but, but part of me is, I'm, I'm allergic to that. I mean, Kate talked about it, that you can't, 
You can't, I don't, I, my phrase is you can't legislate it. You can't just say, I'm going to be more compassionate. You have to sit still with how you're not and how that feels, which is yucky. And, and you have to work on it. And it's nice to say that. I'm going to be more compassionate. Well, good for you. <laughs> Me too. Oh, and I fail. And the, the story, real quick, is that if you were out in, a, you're the, in the Vasudhi uh, Maga, the four divine abodes of the four Brahma Viharas, there's a story about how a bunch of people are out in a, a boat and a sea pirate comes and boards their boats and says, I'm taking one of you. I need, I need an oars person. I'm taking one of you. And the Buddha said, you are not my disciple. You are not my disciple if you stand up and say, take me, I'll go. You just go. Now, is that wisdom? Is that compassion? I mean, it's beyond wisdom and compassion. It's just go. I hope that's useful. Thank you. <laughs> and now, now it is time to stop. Well, thank you all. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it.